Someone asking about um, effort and energy. And I've mentioned when we practice Qigong, say maximum is 70% or 75%, 70%. So in other words, it's not, not full tilt into what you're doing. So the person says, shall we, should we apply this same standard to other aspects of life? For example, at work or during meditation? I'm supposed to be brief about it, I would say yes. Um, use that as your standard. And then if you need to make an extra exertion, uh, and you've got, something in, you've got some reserves, yeah, so you're not driving at full speed all the time. You've got some reserves if you need to make a special push. So because the factor of effort has to be moderated, um, so just to say 70% effort doesn't mean 70% energy. Uh, so you want to have some energy as receptive energy. Now, you may not think receptivity is in energy at all, but it's not the same as being passive. And passive just kind of, you know what, you know, low focus, drift by, passive. That's passive. Receptive means I'm awake, I learn, I'm listening, I'm taking in. And the system is, there's energy there. The system is awake, attentive. It's not doing anything, but it's really listening deeply and taking in. Hmm? And if there isn't that, how can we learn anything? Unless there's that receptivity to listen deeply, to open and be attentive and take in and absorb. Now you know what I'm talking about if you're giving a lecture, for example. You understand that? Yeah, of course, you're mostly in receptive. You may make a few notes, but most you're in receptive. But you want to keep that aspect there all the time because then the receptive is just checking out, hey, what you're doing, what's the results of that? Now, if you're going full tilt into what you're doing, your mind is, is completely kind of fixated on that and there isn't the, the sense of something moderating or a, yeah, moderating or actually noticing what the results, how does that feel? Where am I going? Is there a body here? Yeah. Yeah. Do you understand? Now, you know, it's because it's, that, that's the natural system. So we say that's 100%. 100% means 70% do, 30% listen. <laughs> Both of those require energy, attention, mindfulness. Yeah. So receptive is not the same as passive. And you might... Um, you know, so when you work, you want to have something that's just checking out, are you getting drifting off? Is that really necessary to do? Because people get into sort of this compulsive act, act, do more is better. And you end up complicating everything by doing more and more and more 
because the system is trained to do is the right thing. If something's happening, you want to do something. Uh, and this means we can actually create a lot of busyness and, and sometimes clumsy crashing in and intruding or overdoing something. Mm-hmm. So one receptive, one notices, am I, is there sampajana? And sampajana is the sort of contextual awareness. It means the four features of sampajana. Roughly speaking, there's uh, uh, called gochara, which means it's the right. You look, you're looking at the right thing. You're in the right territory. You're really staying with. Hey, this is this is. I'm in this situation in what palalites. So I'm tuned into what's happening. What are the monks doing? Am I? What's happening? I'm aware of all that. I'm not just oblivious to what's going on around me. I'm sharing a place with hundred other people. Yeah, so how can I be part of this? That's a very simple form of sampajana, not just driving ahead on my own, but how is this going to work together? And so that means you're receptive because you don't always know, you just got to check it out, listen up. Anything you're missing? Okay, seems okay, just keep that. That sense of something there is just checking out the peripheral as well as what you're doing. And if you're meditating, you're aware of, okay, there's this particular mind state going on. So you're keeping, this is happening, and this time within this body, and these are the factors that are stimulating it. So we kind of recognizing with its sampajana is the opening to wisdom. So receptive. So this means, okay, basically the the principle of Dhamma is all, everything that arises, arises dependent upon conditions. And not just one condition, but a multiplicity of conditions coming together. So it means you're checking out. Okay, this particular feeling is happening, this mood is happening, so what's happening in my body? Where's my ethical, where's my integrity? What's happening in my mind? What's the heart? Which is the dominant condition here in all the conditioned faculties? Maybe the mind is, the heart is cramped with ill will or it feels overwhelmed. So we keep that surveillance of sampajana. Sampajana also means we operate what's called sapaya which means suitable. In other words, you operate according to your own measure, your own capacity to not strain and not slacken. You, only you can know that. What's sapaya? What's suitable? Hmm? And so often we want to kind of tell me how many hours, how many days, how many minutes should I sit or walk or stand. You figure. <laughs> Yeah, and it means just know for yourself when you're kind of pushing too hard or when you're slacking off so you get a sense of suitable full steady stable and the right kind of sense of how much energy you're putting in so it's it's sustainable 
It's not just spurt and then crash. Suitable, <laughs> so another form of sampajana, so the purpose. What am, I, what am I aiming for? Again, if you're aiming at work, what are you working for? Obviously, you're working to get a job done, why? So you can get, I mean, it interests you, or you want to solve a problem, or you want to earn a decent wage. That's all totally fair. Why do you want to earn a decent wage so you can have a reasonable life? Right? Get your requisites met, you know, feel comfortable. Okay, so that's your purpose. Now, if you're ruining your life in order to, <laughs> to do a job, then you actually you've missed the point. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Because the whole aim of the, of the job, the work, is to make our life more suitable. Uh, another one is non-delusion. So just be clear about what what's you're doing and be clear that whatever you're doing, it's, I'm sorry to say this, but the results will change. It's never completed. It's always, you're, you're clear about the characteristics. Yeah. Whatever we do, we never finish. It's never finished. It's always not quite complete. Not quite Right. You know, I think when we started monastery in Britain in Chittaviveka, okay, 1979, start the monastery, okay, maybe five years, we'll get things set up. We're still doing it. <laughs> because you should get things set up, then new things arise, things break down, and then get more complexities, management details, and then people have their problems and their issues, and uh, this, you know, think. If only it would settle down into being nice and stable. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it's, it's never completed. Nothing's ever completed. Yeah. The only thing that's completed that can come to an end is craving for it to be completed. <laughs> and you're able to, to flow with it, with the changes. So this is non-delusion. So when you're working, recognize, you know, you're working to get things finally done. It's really, I don't think it's going to happen. So you work in order to do what's skillful and meditation, working with your meditation, not to get some result, but just to get a sense of good energy integrity, clarity that you're, you know, you're, come, you're meeting what needs to be met, you're beginning to understand and there's never an end. <laughs> yeah. The end is when the, the chitta begins to recognize this is conditions. Nibida, just no, <laughs> no more heat about all that and then it cools and the jetana relinquishes yeah. Yeah. so then this so I'm, I'm kind of divert, you know, digressing maybe but why it's important to retain that res- open, receptive non-doing quality which is still engaged with the action it's not drifted off somewhere, it's not full of something else it's actually Listening deeply. This is where your wisdom will arise. Mm-hmm. So there's the action and the receptivity. 
That would be my recommendation. Someone finds it difficult to sit well with their eyes half opened, compared with the eyes fully closed. Is it preferred method to sit with the eyes half opened? Should I strive towards it? <laughs> no, just that it's a, it's a suggestion. Um, it's a suggestion that may be um, relevant or not relevant. I think what I like to do is just question some of the assumptions we make about meditation. You know, it's always... People get, get sort of... <laughs> You look at that from the outside thing, you say, is that really good for you? <laughs> so, you know, it's just, okay, it just it means just kind of, what you're really doing is, is sense restraint. Because when you're walking, you shouldn't walk with your eyes closed. Definitely not. <laughs> Dangerous. So if you can walk with your eyes open and cultivate sense restraint, which is more important, because the eyelids is just a physical structure. What's important is the indria of energy running out through the eyes. So you, you turn that down and you relax around the eyes, the eye sockets. So they're not scurrying around. You relax and you relax within the eyeball. So the pupil isn't photographing things. Then the eye, then you, then you can receive. You can walk along receiving, receptive. And you notice what needs to be seen and occasionally, uh oh, what's happening? Okay. So it's that, that's again, that kind of soft focus. Now when we sit, we may feel that's, that's okay or you may find that you just don't want to have this sense of light or shapes even in the background, you want to switch that off. Of course, absolutely. But remember not to dive back into your thoughts. That's the problem of sitting, eyes closed. I've seen it. Is that people just start thinking. You know, we're just You haven't closed the mind, which is the most important thing to close. It's not the eyes, it's the mind. So... And so if your mind is kind of really babbling away, it may be helpful just to open your eyes because that energy, the energy then is not completely going into the, into the mind. The eyes are open, some of it will come out. So that just helps to decrease the amount of energy going into your thinking mind. You know? So it can act as a stabilizer. And we just and keep the eyes steady. And um, of course you can just... What can be agreeable is you just have a white wall or a cloth, you know, eight foot in front of you, just nothing on it. And just use it as a support you know, to sustain alertness so that you don't fall asleep or drift into your thinking. Because here it's more, a bit more tricky with because the sight of other people's bodies, it's certainly some you know, different colours and shapes and things, so it's a little more stimulating. <coughs> Someone asking for advice on sense restraint. I seem to enjoy drinking oat milk latte and good food. 
How do I practice sensed restraint with this? Take a little sip at a time. <laughs> Don't guzzle it. <laughs> That's restraint. Restraint isn't kind of a closed door. It's a sense of, you know, not just gobbling <laughs> like a dog. You know, <laughs> I've got no restraint. So you just take a little bit. Taste it. Pleasant feeling. Slow it down. Take a little bit pleasant feeling. And then at a certain point, I think that's enough. (laughs) Because it's, uh, you know, uh, the uh, tasting, the tongue doesn't mind. It's it's the, (laughs) you know, a sense of uh, pleasantness. So that feeling, the pleasantness arises in the citta. Pleasant feeling. It's because food is gratifying. It doesn't argue with you. It's easy. You don't have to work hard. Just open your mouth, put it in, chomp, chomp. That's totally easy. And it's generally got some pleasant flavor. And you start to feel comfortable. Nice, so easy going, pleasant. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> if you take your time with it, then it's much more easy to regulate. Yeah, the pleasant feeling comes and then subsides. You take your time, and then eventually, if you, I think it's enough really in terms of just what the body needs. So I know someone who makes fudge. So after a while, disciples, devoted disciples, start to get an eye on what do you think the Ajahn really likes. They try to look around and see he always seems to like that. They try to give you little things to get in, you know, with either their coffee or their peanut butter or something to get a little treat. So you think, okay, it's very nice. Uh, somebody who makes this excellent fudge. Please don't give me fudge. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I get this jar of fudge and I have this fudge one. And wow. And then before I know it, I've got another one in my hand. Where did that come from? It's going down. <laughs> I notice just contemplating experience, there's a, there's a moment after the fudge gets into your mouth. This is kind of burst of flavour and pleasure, boom! Like like a tiny explosion of wow! This fudge explodes in the mouth. The taste buds explode. You know, pleasant, and that's the moment when, at that moment, then your hand reaches out for the next one. <laughs> well, it wants to, because but if you just linger with that pleasant moment, it kind of rises pleasant, and then it sort of fades fades out and something else you feel quite comfortable you don't get that same push and urge so you know then you learn something now we can't you know we're living in this world where there are these senses you know taste touch sight smell yeah and they generate pleasure and pain jitta finds some pleasant pain you can't avoid that. 
there is such a thing as pleasant feeling. It's not there shouldn't be any. There is pleasant feeling. What are you going to do about it? Just kind of no, no pleasant feeling at all. <laughs> or just oh, this is pleasant feeling. Yeah. And then it arises. Give yourself some space and it passes. And what you begin to recognize is most useful is pleasant feeling that takes you to the best place. So as I say, feeling is an energy that drives. So uh, sense pleasures tend to, pleasant feeling with sense pleasures tends to push you, the mind, towards that same sense space. Taste something, taste something more, taste something more. And then eventually, okay, had enough, drink something, had enough, listen to something. So it just pushes you around the sense spheres, which is not necessarily evil, but it's not really going anywhere that useful in the long run. And you find there's a kind of pleasure, of course, the Buddha recommended, the pleasure that comes from things like dana, generosity, loving kindness. These sources of pleasure, you get pleasant because it's pleasant and it's skillful and it's creating skillful karma, then, you know, the different quality to to what the feeling does, instead of driving towards some next sense object, it kind of jitter suffuses in it. It feels gladdened. Gladdened. Pomoja. Gladdened. Gladdened. Brightened. You see, which no sense objects don't do that. They kind of, they, 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 they sort of like, like fire. You know, the taste burns, rushes through, and it, it's, it's a flare. You know, it's a flaring experience. Oh, yeah, it's great. You get excited. But qualities that are take you to the best place, bases that take you to the blessed place, is when the result of that gladdens. Yeah. Pomoja, which means the sense of the chitta itself, because that pleasure has come from the chitta itself rather from a sense base. Yeah? And of course, we kind of, many people half know this, but they don't really know the power and the fullness of it. That's yeah, okay, Christmas or somebody's birthday, it's nice, give them a gift. Uh, so we do, most people know some dana, makes you feel good. But, <laughs> you know, the Buddha said, what he said was one of the ways in which he said it was so striking about he, what he was doing and teaching compared with the other summoners who gone forth, the recluses of the time, says, I teach pleasure. <laughs> and they thought, what? He teaches pleasure? What kind of recluse is this who teaches pleasure? He says, I teach the supreme pleasures, the pleasure of goodwill, the pleasure of contentment the pleasure of skillful karma, the pleasure of deep meditation. These are not blameworthy. These actually encourage it to open and release its fretfulness, agitation. So we're not against pleasure. We just see sense pleasure takes you this far. If you stay with the experience of the feeling, you notice it arises, it bursts, it tingles, and it subsides if you stay with it to the subsiding 
phase, which is generally only a few seconds, then there isn't that compulsive urge to get another one. Now you may think, okay, I'm still hungry, so I'll eat some more food. That's fine. But it's not that frantic, driven state. So this goes on how to reduce our craving. Craving for nice food and sense pleasures. <laughs> well, by, by wisdom. Yeah. Craving uh, can only be sustained through ignorance. Craving can only be sustained through ignorance. Because craving is a failure. When we crave something, there's an energy of need. Don't really want, and I get it. So something wants to be filled. And then there's that moment when you get what you want. Yeah. You get what you want. Oh, this is great. And then you got it. And then the energy changes. Because what was really, really the most exciting bit of the craving was the moment when you get it. And that moment lasts for a second or ten or maybe a minute. And then it's gone. And you've got to crave something else to get that feeling back of the excitement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's only ignorance that doesn't notice that. Mm-hmm. I remember somebody telling me, a businessman, he said he, when he did a big good deal, he'd buy himself a special super deluxe something. So he bought himself this Porsche car and he got it ordered the right colour or the design and interior everything perfect custom built really excited to get this dream car he was fantastic car he really every detail he worked out cost tons of money so he goes down to the showroom he says yes sir is the car he looks at it they take it out fantastic puts the those days you had keys <laughs> Anyway, switches the thing on, it purrs, cruises down the road. This is so fantastic. Cruising down the road, this Porsche. He drives into his into his drive, and he switches the engine off. I don't want it anymore. (laughs) I've only had it ten minutes, and I'm already bored with it. Because they really, the highest pleasure was when the moment when you just get it, for that moment passes. If you're wise, you see that process again and again and again, and you can be to recognize, oh no, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> so it's certainly not about hating, craving, or despising yourself, or it's about wisely experiencing the arising, the expectation that craving sets up, and the results of it not fulfilling you. Now, one of the main theme I would suggest in Dhamma practice is how to transform this 
craving, which is a powerful energy, into what's called desire or motivation, chanda. And there's similar, chanda is also about, you know, making things happen, getting somewhere, getting along, you know. And it can be associated with sense craving or sense desire. But it's also considered one of the important uh, faculties uh, for spiritual practice. We are motivated. We certainly, I want to get to the end of suffering. Definitely. I want to really understand my habits. Definitely. I want to make an effort to resolve. Definitely. Yeah. I want to put aside some time. I'm motivated. Definitely. You know. So this is chanda. And this way we use our power, potentials as human beings. We've got desire potential. This, this realm is sometimes called the realm of desire. You, know, you can't avoid it because of pleasure and pain, because of cause and effect. This means there's always going to be some wishing for this and not wanting that. Yeah. Because that's what that's what we're living in, right? But a wise person begins to transform their craving, uh, sensuality, craving to become something is another form of craving. And this is, gets quite subtle. I want to be a sotapanna. I want to become enlightened. I want to be this, that, or the other. It's craving for results. So that I can become something in the future, then I'll be okay. Uh, uh, so that, that there's craving. So we say, you know, put that aside. Your motivation should be to stabilize, steady, understand, develop wisdom, cultivate sati. That's what that's, that takes plenty of purpose and motivation and to sustain that is reliable. Mm. You do that, putting in that input, that's bound to have effects, cause and effects, bound to have effects. And if you want to, you know, got ideas about enlightenment and stream entry and non-return, all that kind of stuff. Uh, careful with the ideas, do the practice and have faith that uh, <laughs> ignorance will be dispelled and you'll release yourself from the fetters of self-view and craving. That takes motivation. But it's motivation, it's always I want to learn something about this life. Yeah. And I want to bring forth. Craving is always I want to get something to come in. Fill me up. Chanda means I want to bring something out. That's the, that's the difference. The more you do that, actually your craving starts to dwindle because it just doesn't go very far. takes time. How should one guard the mind from, from social 
interactions to refrain from overindulging in socializing. Well, what is overindulging? So, so basically, <laughs> you know, your actions in terms of interactions with other other people are, are a source of topic for mindfulness. And mindfulness is not some kind of school teacher who's going to tell you right and wrong. Sampajano is the wise one. So this is a little bit, seems to be going off topic a bit here. This is going in nowhere useful. How's this feel? Mm. Let's just restrain a bit here. Let's drop that topic. Uh, that's enough of that. Feeling overcooked, overheated. Uh, just kind of just not losing sati, losing sati. So, okay. So we can't see have that sampajana as a wisdom faculty that helps us to uh, acknowledge uh, when we're uh, sati and mindfulness is is dropping. But mindfulness is not some you know formal practice. You can use it as a, in terms of formal practice. Mindfulness is just the ability to to, to bear something in mind, stay with it and notice and, and be attentive to the effects. So it's both placing and also receiving. And with other people, naturally, you know, we've got to make, how do you make contact occur? Basically some sense of agreeable, hello, you know, how are things going? You know, we're not machines, so we have to kind of gently negotiate some contact. That's not wasting time, that's necessary. And maybe sometimes it's just fent loose, like how's how's the day and you know, what's happening and how are you feeling? Not you know, not urgent, important business. So you're just kind of loosening up into feeling what feels comfortable together. And if you're staying with that, then you know you're really considering what's important to to talk about. What is it? What can we just sort of just very briefly, okay, that's that. Nothing more to say on that topic. Really, it's enough. Doesn't interest me. And you know, being able to listen and turn towards another person with a mind of goodwill, a mind of compassion, a mind of sympathy, patience, and. Yeah. So we don't, ideally in social interactions, we don't use someone just to dump all our stuff on, nor are we inviting other people to dump all their stuff on us. <laughs> we try to negotiate contact. Yes, sir. No. Okay, that, yeah, that's fine. Um, actually, I've heard, yeah, you've said that before, actually. Yeah, yeah you've said that... Th- three times. I heard the first time. I know it's stressful for you. Um, what, what, you know, it's yours. What do you want to do about it? You know, rather than just blah, 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 blah. And yeah, I know, I know they don't treat you well, but yeah, I've heard that. What do you want to do about it? So you can kind of gently steer the conversation. You're not just there as somebody 
dumping. But uh, the Buddha said the way you cultivate and you protect yourself with other, when you're with other people, uh, you protect yourself from being irritable, being short-tempered, losing sympathy. He says you protect yourself by cultivating kindness, patience, uh, non-dismissiveness, and sympathy then actually other people help you to grow when you see it like that. So then it's not an indulgence, it's a practice. It's a practice. Mm. Because you're not seeking something out of it. Uh, If you do have something you need some advice with, then it's good to have people who feel comfortable with you, who you, you've listened to them, so they feel comfortable with you, and you say, you know, I've got something that's really bothering me, I wonder if I could just ask your advice on this. And they say, oh yeah, sure, okay. So then that's, that's useful, because you know, it's Kalyanamita is essential for spiritual practice, and the Buddha said, if you could find one person and you, who, can, who can help you that way, you've got to a treasure, just even one person who you can say, I've really got some, something I need to talk about, give me some attention please, can I ask your attention? And then you can talk things over. So social interaction is a, is a careful and mindful practice and it's not just, it's not just what, well it doesn't have to be just casual, distracting, socialising, it can be companionship, um, being a patient, good-hearted person, and um, also seeking wise advice from others. Because none of us can really, really see ourselves completely, you know. So you can't see the back of your head. (laughs) And so other people can help you to see your blind spots. And you want people who, who... that's done in a way that's comfortable and agreeable. Like not, yeah, something wrong with you, but, oh, have you noticed that? Have you seen that? What? Notice you always do that? Yeah. Do you know why? Um, no. It's just a habit. <laughs> do you know the effect it has? Yeah. No. So people can help to, you to negotiate. And then you reveal things you hadn't seen about yourself. But it generally gets kind of pointless when it goes to these kind of endless dinner parties when people are not, nobody's listening, everybody's talking, but nobody's listening. <laughs> Just yak, 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 yak. <laughs> The skandhas or the kundas, this is, um, uh, I think I've written them down for you, Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, the five aggregates. I saw these dissolve, anicca, dukkha, nata, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and not self, while I was sitting home, not meditating. The experience was disorienting. I had no identity to hold on, and all this appearing, disappearing, breaking up is quite scary too what is 
Lumpur's advice when I feel anxious during the experience. Um, just to, again, you mentioned returning to the present. Of course, that's true. What is the present? Mm, what is the present? Uh, mm, actually, <laughs> What's the difference between being in a dream, you know, people you know and powerful feelings and things are happening and emotions are stirring and things are moving along and being awake when images are happening, people are moving around, emotions are being stirred, thoughts are happening. What's the difference between awake and being asleep? When you're, uh, when you're asleep, you have no experience of your body. You're out of it. When you're awake, you can always return earth element. You may not have the visual experience of your body, but you've got some sense the body provides a certain quality of presence, certain core stability. Yeah. So when we return to that, it's not an identity at all, but it's an element. And the element has an energy to it. The earth element is like has a force of gravity, just like a magnet. It's, it kind of attracts things to come into definition. It's, it's, a, it's a gravitational experience, like something as that. And instead of being in this kind of universal soup of dreams and memories and emotions, something pulls, something gravitational force occurs where there's a sense of presence. Yeah? Presence as something, not really a sensation, but an energy. In some stable energy form. So the earth element attracts that potential for stability. Yeah. And so this is what we find in the body. Now, if you, this seems a bit mysterious. Okay, so if you're feeling you're kind of going all over the place, and each dukkanata, stand up. <laughs> stand up. Find out where your feet are. Standing is a very really useful meditation because it is, um, it compels. <laughs> when we're sitting, we can go all over the place. You can't do that when you're standing because you'll fall over. <laughs> and the body knows it. So standing almost, you know, as soon as you drift off the standing, the body, oh, pulls you up again. Standing in a way is the, is the su- supremacy of the earth element. <laughs> it just pulls you into, you know, into, into a form. And standing and then you feel sort of disoriented, then sort of bend your knees a little bit, bend your knees and then gently up and down, movement, 
the water element, the fluidities. Uh, fluidities. Now it can be the case we get into mental states where the mind feels seized, panic. Uh, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, where am I, am I, what am I this, am I that, the other. Things are locked. Yeah. And if you go, don't, don't deal with the mind state, you can't deal with the mind state. Just get on your feet, bend your knees, bob up and down. That's your body, it's the, the water element. Fluidities. Oh, you come out of a locked state, a frozen state, the shock state. Yeah. Somebody else is having a shock, going to shock state. Seizures, oh, I don't know what to do. Just get them on their feet. Say, Let's go for a walk together. Just a couple of steps. Come on. Just hold my hand. Let's go for a little walk. Get the movement back. Movement comes back. The frozen state dissolves. Okay. These are then these um, elements are, once you know what I'm talking about, they're resources uh, to, to uh, return the mind, the chitta, to balance, to a balanced state. Yeah. Water helps to come out of the frozen, locked state. Mm. Mm. What else can occur if your mind is spinning out, going out? Mm. Sometimes if you go numb, numbed out, just, uh, don't know why I'm feeling anything at all. I've got to Neroda. I must be in Neroda. I'm not feeling anything. Uh-oh. <laughs> so then, you know, you've got to get people moving so they get the fire element. Get, you know, feel something. Fire. Fire. Get some initiative. Get some energy moving. Moving. Warming up. Yeah. Yeah. So these, you know, these, these are just kind of practical skills. What you don't do is you don't deal with the mind directly. You deal with the body and get the body to deal with the mind. Mind state. Because when the mind, if the mind is gone out, there's no way of reasoning with it. There's no way of talking to it. It's out. Only the body can, body can pull it back. I don't say only the body. Sometimes you get very powerful teachers who can bring people back. But if you don't have that, then you have to use this. And uh, yeah, be aware of ideas of not feeling anything and attaining nibbana and getting out to Niroda. Be careful about those ideas because you can easily, people do in meditation, a certain percentage of people really go crazy. They lose their minds, their chitters just run out. They're not properly grounded, not properly earthed, not properly centered, not properly steadied, not in the body. Buddha is very clear on this. He says, you know, your domain has to be the four establishments of mindfulness. If you stay in this, Mara will not get you. If you move outside that territory, you are prey.
And he likened it to like a, a quail, a little bird, you know, with a hawk flying over. And the quail is out in the open field, the hawk comes down and catches it. Says, you're in the wrong territory. Yeah, so the clever quail, he knows how to get in a ploughed field where the clods of earth protect it. So he's protected, the earth comes, plucked and down and smashes itself on the earth because the quail is, is behind those, those boundaries. So this is how you use the four establishments. I tell you this to make you safe. Yeah, there are things in this mind you don't understand. There's territories in the chitta you do not understand. There's territories in the chitta that nobody really understands. And you can go a long way out and out there uh, into into territory where you lose your sanity and balance. Yeah, but if you stay with these, you tether your chitta to the body in this simple way. It may not be the most comfortable thing, but it's safe. And it's doing the work you need to do through this embodied condition. It's in this body, the Buddha once commented, in this very body, with its perceptions and feelings and consciousness, is the arising of the world, the passing of the world, and the way to understand the arising and passing of the world. This is the way to end suffering within this very body. <laughs> yeah, and we're not talking about organs, we're talking about the experience of embodiment as we establish it through sati. So, uh, so be aware of that and uh, uh, bear it in mind. Jittas arise all over us. <laughs> In the senses, what is that which watches, observes, knows the chittas? So when chittas is used in the plural, it's, um, it's an Abhidharma term where they sort of felt that every distinct shift of chitta, they call it a different chitta. So we might say the chitta is passionate, the chitta is calm, the chitta is with mindfulness, the chitta is no mindfulness, so they said, well, these are, we can almost see this as distinct, different chittas. Um, I don't necessarily use that language, but that's where this idea comes from. Uh, well, the Buddha generally talked about the chitta, and formations arising within it are multiple and diverse. Uh, sankharas, these are the formations, and perceptions invade it, and Sankharas arise out of it. These are variable. Uh, but he said, you, I, he says the chitta, and as it's affected, it shifts so quickly. I can't even. I don't even got a metaphor for it. He said it's just so shimmering, constantly shimmering like that. Now, so the chitta is, is extremely acute and sensitive. And it shimmers. It's never stable. In some ways. But it has a, it's an aspect. It also is a reflective aspect. So it has this sensitivity to be affected, but it also has in its own field an awareness that knows I'm being affected. It knows I'm anxious, knows, hears, 
uh, worry, you know, here's passion, here's loving kindness. So it, that's sort of built in. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So you liken it rather like the body. You know, you have the whole body is present, and then you can feel a feeling in the body, and the body goes, oh. And the body knows that feeling, is aware of that feeling, and okay, that's that. And it adjusts in accordance with how sensations are moving. It's both sensitive, but also has a primary kind of awareness that's receiving this and moderating how to, how to respond. So this is a gift. Could say because if we didn't have this reflective aspect, we'd be completely crazy. <laughs> Can you imagine just every, every impulse, every thought, just rushing through with nothing to moderate it? This would be unspeakable insanity. Uh, people do lose it occasionally, but there's a reflective aspect, and in Dhamma practice, that is what. Uh, we encourage through sati because sati both senses something and then how is that receptive now in that receptivity is the possibility for what's called panya or understanding or discernment or wisdom to occur it reflects you're experiencing something and you know you're experiencing it yeah it's not you don't even think about it, but you can sense, oh, that's unpleasant. You know it, yet something is aware of that. Hmm? And so in meditation, what we're doing is rather than reacting to, to what's felt or sensed or thought, we're aware of it, and we kind of give a little more weight to the awareness property, more weight to it, more importance to it. It's really quite unpleasant, really aware, noticing unpleasant, noticing the reactions, noticing the sense of this shouldn't be happening, wondering what to do about it, noticing, wondering what to do about it. And then the wave passes, you're aware. So that's, you know, that's where you get insight from because once that awareness has been both acknowledged, fundamental feature of, of our minds, our chittas and it's engaged, it's not just theoretical but I'm aware of pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling that's basically the most significant feature and the reactions to it, the sankharas you know, and then I'm not engaging with those or fighting with them or resisting them or feeling guilty about them, just that's that that and then what's left is awareness. When you begin to then see how these formations, these mental formations, these sankharas don't have to capture you. They may arise, you may craving, desire, worry, aggression. They don't have to capture you. Just okay, there's that. There it is. Arises, passes. Ooh. Well, this is how we, we both learn something. We don't, you know, all this, we park a come, all these habits are now witnessed and understood as what they are. 
And there's something about just constantly returning to that awareness and become, so it becomes the energy goes into that and strengthens that. And what, what occurs is gradually the sankara aspect of the jitta, the activation, gets less and less energy in it because you're, you're drawing energy back into awareness, into stability. So those sankharas get less pressurized, less, less juice, and they begin to quieten down. Not because you've had an emotional reaction to them, because you haven't had an emotional reaction to them. <laughs> and so what's left is, is awareness of them. And that gradually gains, gains vigor, gains strength, gains confidence. And then we say, wow, all this stuff that you think you are, that you think you would be, you're worried you could be, you should be, you might be, all this stuff is just stuff. And there's this, which is stable, reliable, uh, unconditioned. Uh, 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 that's the aim, long-term aim of Buddhist practice, is to incline towards that. We'll gain understanding and uh, uh, we'll get released. It doesn't mean that you can't engage, but you, you're not compulsive about it. See, engagement is also fed by wisdom. This is appropriate, this is suitable, this is correct, and this is enough. Upon which note, that's enough. <laughs>